Hey everyone, welcome back to the Digital Discipleship Podcast. Uh, my name is Augustine, and I'm so excited that you are here joining us for another episode. It's been a minute, but life has been a little crazy, so um, it's cool to be able to jump back in with you guys. Today we're going to cover 11 questions that I chose from a Q&A that I did on my Instagram where I just took some questions from you guys. And I want to talk about them in more depth here on the podcast. Um, so if you're listening to the podcast, feel free to check the chapter marks in the description. Or if you're watching on YouTube, the chapters on the screen so you can jump to the question that you most want to hear talked about. Uh, I am excited about what is coming up on the podcast. Uh, got some good content coming up. And I'm excited to release more vlogs here pretty soon on YouTube. Again, these first couple of months of 2023 have been insane, um, but I'm excited to be able to jump back into the vlogging world and the podcasting world. So if you haven't already, please subscribe. It means a lot and it helps my channel grow even faster. So I appreciate every single one of you that has followed or subscribed on Apple, Spotify, YouTube. Thank you guys so much. It means so much to see all of your positive feedback. All right, the first question of the day. Someone asked, what are my thoughts on the Asbury revival? First of all, my first thought is praise God. Praise God, our, our generation needs this. Gen Z needs this. Our nation needs this. Our world needs this. They need a touch from God, and they need revival in their hearts. And when I say they, I really mean we, because... So do I. So do you. We all need to be revived, um, especially in seasons of our life where maybe we've become apathetic, our faith is a little dormant. And what I see at Asbury is both beautiful and thought-provoking at the same time. So I have three thoughts on the Asbury revival that I'd really love to share with you guys. My first thought is that um, when Jesus shows up in Scripture, in our lives, there is both division and devotion. When Jesus shows up, there's both division and devotion. What do I mean by that? Well, when you read through the scripture, when you read through it and you study the life of Jesus, everywhere he went, division happened. And it wasn't because Jesus was trying to be divisive, but by Jesus being Jesus, by Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, some people had issues with that. Some people felt threatened by that. And I think when we look at the story of Jesus in the Bible, um, it's very much like we are thinking about Jesus today. People were looking for a move of God in their nation. The Israelites were wanting a Savior and a Messiah. But when Jesus showed up, he caused a lot of people to be confused, cautious, concerned, and even cynical. And I think we see a lot of that in our generation, in our life, on social media today. When I look at the thoughts that surround the Asbury revival, the Asbury awakening, the Asbury worship movement, whatever you want to call it, when I look at it, I see a lot of people trying to be discerning, which I think is wise, but I see a lot of people that are confused and cynical and concerned that perhaps this was just emotionalism or that this was just something that people tried to make happen. But every account I ever hear from anyone that went to Asbury is that it was so simple. It was so beautiful. It was so student-led. There was no agenda. There was no um, 
famous preacher or famous worship leader, just young people wanting to worship and seek God. I think when I, when I hear people being cynical, I often think that that's how Jesus was portrayed um, in the scriptures, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rulers, and eventually even a lot of the people were so cynical that Jesus truly was the Messiah. We see Jesus on the cross and them saying, if you truly are the son of God, and I think there's very much that kind of sentiment today where it's like, well, if this truly is a move of God, then X, Y, and Z. And unfortunately, those people that were cynical at the cross, same type of people that are cynical today. And so my heart, and I hope everyone's heart cry is Lord send revival. Our land needs revival. Our culture needs revival. Our people need revival. Our churches need revival. We want a move of God. And if that's our heart, if that's our cry, then we have to lean in not with division, but with devotion that saying, Hey Jesus, if this is you show up, would you reveal yourself? Speak to me. I want to see you in this. I was just listening to a pastor recently who was initially very cynical of the movement that was happening at Asbury. But the more he prayed about it, the more he realized like, if this is God, I don't want to be that person on the outside looking in. I want to, I want to be there. And if Jesus isn't in it, at least I'm going to be in it with the people and I'm going to be there and I'm going to love them. I'm going to try to take care of them. I don't want to stand on the outside throwing stones. And so my challenge to you guys is cynicism is never the answer. Let's be spiritually discerning. Yes, but let's not wait for every box to be checked before we can jump in and say it's Jesus. I remember um, seeing a, a tweet by Shane Pruitt that just made me laugh, but it's so real. The tweet said, Lord, send us revival. And God responds, here you go. And then our response as the people of God is, now, Lord, here is a list of my concerns, critiques, and cautions about this movement that you're doing. And I think it's very true to everything that's happening in our world today is when God's doing something, it's like, well, if I was going to critique this move of God, I have this concern about this move of God, or I'm a little cautious that these young people might be too emotionally invested into worship. Guys, I just want to caution your hearts that if there's any of that in you, that you would just surrender and you would submit that. I think there's order. I think there's spiritual discernment. I think there's something to be said about, hey, we're not going to go 24 hours a day endlessly. There, It's a season, and then you transition to something where it says, hey, we want to be sustainable with Christ. We want to be rooted. We want to be abiding. We want a regular rhythm with him. We can't just be in the prayer room 24 hours a day. But let that not lead to cynicism in our own hearts. The second reflection I had on the Asbury revival is that uh, revival isn't the goal. Jesus is our goal. And I think we all know that, but I think if we're not careful when we look at revival at Asbury and what's going on, it can awaken in us a desire to go experience hopping. And what I mean by that is that we jump from experience to experience, that we say, okay, well, I had this great worship moment. I had this great prayer moment. Now I need to go have this moment. I need to go have this moment. I need to go have this moment. And before you know it, you're just trying to jump from mountaintop to mountaintop. And again, that's not what Christ had in mind for us when he said, Hey, abide, remain in me. And when we remain in him, as it says in John 15, that we become more like him just through the practical ways of developing a lifestyle with him and a lifestyle of jumping from moment to moment, 
isn't realistic. It's not about just having cool moments with the Lord or cool memories or cool altar moment experiences. It's about having a lifestyle with him where you can walk with him. I imagine Adam and Eve in the garden where the, the scripture says that they walked with him in the cool of the day, talking, having relationship. And it was an encounter with God. It was relationship with God. But I don't think it was very dramatic, um, probably not super emotional. It was just good. And so I want to encourage you guys that as you look at the Asbury Revival, don't look to go experience hopping. Know that revival, conferences, experiences, as great as they are, they're not the goal. I've had incredible moments at conferences myself, moments of encounter and, and fantastic worship nights. But those don't sustain me. It's my abiding, remaining in him that sustains me. Remember that Jesus is the goal. Revival is not the goal. And lastly, uh, the point I want to make about Asbury is a lot of people ask this question. <laughs> is this revival? Is it, is it revival? Can we label it a revival? Can we call it a revival? And I just think two things. One, um, God determines if it's revival because God sees the hearts. And also history determines if it's revival. I've heard several theologians talk about what's been happening, and their big claim is that, hey, we're going to see if this is revival, not by how it spreads or if more movements pop up. It's great if they do, but that doesn't really necessarily mark revival. What marks revival is change lives, change communities, change culture, impacts that when we look back in 20, 30, 40 years, there are people that were so marked by this experience that it did change the next decades of their life as they surrender to God, their careers, um, their relationships, the things that God had called them to do in their lives. And so I think that is how we can tell, um, how we can tell if revival is real, because to me, revival is an inward reality that does manifest into external realities, but first it has to start as an inward reality. So I think there were many people that went to Asbury that had a revival moment because their heart was dead and now it's alive. I know people who shared testimonies that they struggle with anxiety and depression, but they walked out of there and they said, I don't struggle with that anymore. And so praise God, how beautiful is that? But it's not up to us. It's definitely not up to me to declare, is this revival? Is it an awakening? Is it a worship movement? I don't know what it is. All I know is I want Jesus to be glorified and Jesus to be worshiped. Amen. All right, the next question I had, a little bit lighter, but I actually think fascinating, and I'm curious to hear what your guys' thoughts are on this. Someone just wrote Bigfoot as a question. If this guy's listening, you're a troll, but I'm going to take your troll question, and I'm going to turn it into something awesome. I'm going to ask the question, what do Christians do with mythical creatures that we talk about? Um, there are many mythical creatures that either scripture mentions or history books or legends where it's like Leviathans, Nephilim, dragons, behemoths, goblins, demons, talking animals in, in Narnia. And I think there's something to be said about um, how not all of those things are fiction. Like there is some fact to it. I always think there's a little truth in every myth, right? And I look at things like in the Bible, and I see Leviathan, and there's a lot of debate, Is what, what kind of beast is that? Is it like a, a manifestation of evil? Is it, um, is it a crocodile? I heard someone was just an overgrown crocodile. It's one of those huge crocodiles from back in the day. 
I've heard people say it's a dinosaur. I've heard people say uh, it was a dragon that doesn't no longer exists. There's all sorts of things, right? And, and so what do Christians do with all of this mythical creatures? I think there probably weren't dragons that walked the earth, um, but Nephilim, aka like giants, and we see giants in all this like mythical lore and you know Greek mythology and even things like the Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings, where we see giants that are involved in those, right? And so I think what's interesting is creative writers pull from legends and myth and stories and history and put it all together and they kind of create their own worlds. But I think we obviously can't live according to the possibility of these creatures being reality. Like we can't base our entire faith and story around it. But I do have a theory and Ali and I actually talk about this theory a lot. And so some of you may have heard this before, but we think that potentially C.S. Lewis was onto something with talking animals. We think that potentially in heaven that there will be talking animals to some extent. I think I have, I have a few reasons for this. So, man, some of y'all listening to this like, what is happening? <laughs> so reason number one. Okay, I do think there'll be animals in heaven because when we look at the garden and before the fall, animals existed. And, you know, the Bible says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And so I I feel that if I look at that and I say, well, all of those things are going to be restored and even enhanced, like it's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. I don't think animals are just not going to be there. And I think if they are there, that there's a strong possibility that they talk. And so when I look at... When I look at scripture as well in the garden, this has always fascinated me. When Eve is approached by the serpent in the garden, it says that the serpent began to speak to her. And there is no mention of her being surprised, thrown off, freaked out. Let me just tell you, if you saw a snake come up to you in your house, and that might freak you out in itself, but then the snake started audibly speaking to you, this would be interesting. I, I, I would freak out. I really would. If a snake, I'd be like, I am dreaming. This is a demon, something crazy. Right. But Eve doesn't freak out. Eve starts a conversation with the serpent, AKA the devil. But I, I look at that and I say, is it possible that she wasn't surprised because she had talked with other animals? I, I think it's a real thing to consider because the Bible doesn't say anything about it. And again, I'm not basing all of my faith around this. This isn't the crux of my Christian walk. But I do think there's something to be said about the lack of surprise. Another scripture reference for you Bible nerds out there, Balaam and his donkey. When Balaam's donkey talks to Balaam, really yells back at him. It's like, hey, there's an angel up here. Like, stop hitting me. Um. Balaam just responds back like it's normal. Balaam doesn't act surprised. He doesn't jump off the donkey and run away. He's like, oh my gosh. No, he's literally just like, oh, yeah, and yells back at him and, you know, how the rest of the story goes. So I just think it's fascinating that there's those two instances, and maybe there's more that I'm forgetting, but those two instances specifically have always stuck out to me as like, um, they're not concerned about the animal talking. And so maybe... That was a thing, and maybe it will be a thing. So what does that mean for us as Christians? Well, be mindful about how you treat creation. 
creation care can go to the extreme, but we are caretakers of this world. From the very beginning in Genesis, we are caretakers of this world, and that includes the animals. And so how you treat animals matter. Um, and so keep that in mind as you read through Scripture. <laughs> that got so serious, man. I mean, just think about it. If your dog could talk, what would your dog say about you? <sighs> okay. Next question. Should Christians use gender-neutral pronouns? Mm. We're going to open up to the scripture for this. Um, here's, here's just a quick thought I have as I'm going to scripture. Whenever we're asking the question should, um, there's always a why attached to something. So why should I? Why should I not? And so if you guys know me at all, I use the word why a lot in my vocabulary because I like to know why we do something, why we don't do something, why we should do something, why we shouldn't do something. So I love the question. I think it's a really great question, and it's obviously very culturally relevant. So for a Christian, I, I, well, I think there's a couple categories when, in this question just, just so I hit them all. First is should I refer to myself by gender-neutral pronouns as a Christian? And I would say no, because I think it's very clear, and, and I don't want to go on a, a whole long tangent on this, but I believe that biblically there's male and female, and that that's not a decision that a human being makes, but it's a decision made by the Creator. And if that's what's biblically true, and that's what I see in Scripture, then using gender-neutral pronouns is not an accurate description of who you are. Um don't use it to bend to the cultural realities around you uh, in one way. Hey, if they want you to respect their pronouns, their gender neutral pronouns, okay, that we'll get to that in point number two. But in point number one, you can be who God has created you to be and stand firm on that. Doesn't mean you're rude about it. Doesn't mean you have to be obnoxious about it. It's just you're standing on truth. And the truth of the word of God says male and female designed by the creator. So that's point number one. But point number two is, as Christians, we should lead with kindness and not judgment. I think there's a lot of people that when they would hear that question, be like, nah, we're not calling that guy a girl or that guy a gender-neutral pronoun or, man, that that woman's giving birth and she's going to give it a, a gender-neutral pronoun for now until the child decides what he, she, it is. And it's a very confusing world right now. And honestly, I know for a lot of you, even for myself sometimes, it can be very frustrating because it doesn't seem very rational. It seems like why would – a very rational question I've heard is why would you give the seven-year-old a, a choice in the matter? The seven-year-old doesn't know anything about themselves, let alone the world. They don't even know what they're really deciding. But that's the world we live in. That's what people are doing. And so I think though in in – the spirit of Christ, we see that kindness leads to repentance, not judgment. It's easy to judge. It's easy to criticize. It's easy to look down or when you question someone's gender neutral pronouns that you become judgmental and you think to yourself, this person, they just don't get it. They're stupid. They're out of it. And no, guys, that's not how Jesus looked at people, even sinners that would come across his path. He would treat them with kindness and with 
respect and love. And it was his kindness that drew people to him and eventually to give their lives to following him. I'm going to read uh, Romans 2, verses 1 through 4. And I, I, I want you to hear this scripture in light of gender-neutral pronouns. Paul says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do and do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So I just want to challenge you, just as Paul is challenging the church here in Rome, to not show contempt for the kindness, forbearance, and patience that Christ showed you when you were in your sin, when you were confused. See, those that haven't had the revelation of Christ, those that are far from him, those that aren't living in relationship with him, we can't expect them to live in the way that we are as Christ followers. Uh, They haven't had that revelation. They haven't made that decision. And so until they do it, they are in a different place mentally. They're not there. And so to them, it makes perfect sense to us. It makes no sense. But to a lot of people, the gospel is foolishness. When people talk about the gospel, like, that's so stupid. Why would you believe in a guy who came and died and supposedly raised again and he's coming back? Like, that doesn't make rational sense. Well, it doesn't have to make rational sense to us because we're believing it by faith. And in many ways, people are choosing gender and things based on their feelings, based on situations, based on culture, social media. And so just have grace, have love, have patience, know that, hey, if they're going to follow Christ, they're going to look like Christ eventually, but they have to make that first step of commitment to him before we can begin the sanctification process. Don't be upset with the sinner that they don't look like Jesus. They haven't spent any time with him. They haven't been around him. So just remember that as you talk about gender neutral pronouns. As a Christian, my personal belief is that no, you should not be using gender neutral pronouns in any way, shape, or form, because you're created male and female by God, scripture, biblical truth. And the other way, though, I think if someone asked you and they're not following Jesus and they asked you to use those to refer to them, I think it's respectful. I think it's kind. I think it's patient. And I think it kind of sets a new standard for them of if Jesus was here, he sees them as sons and daughters. But at the end of the day, he's not going to bash them over the head and tell them they're stupid. So pray through that. I know it's hard. I know it's sensitive. Um, I know it's difficult, but walk with that in grace and know that the Lord walks with you as well. All right. Another one. Can you lose your salvation? <laughs> Let's go theological. going to go to Romans one. Also, Allie brought me back some coffee from Kenya. She was just in Nairobi and it is so good. It's so refreshing in the morning. Let me tell you. All right. Let me read Romans 1 verses 21 through 25. And then I'll give my answer. Paul says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him 
as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. He was forever praised. Amen. So here's my long and short answer. Can someone lose their salvation? Yes and no. Yes and no. Uh, I think lose your salvation is a bad word to use in the sentence because it implies that you could drop it out of your pocket and you would lose your salvation. But I don't see anyone that I know in my life that has ever lost their salvation. I think they've exchanged it. And so, yes, I do believe it is possible to be a follower of Jesus, give your life to him, be following him, but somewhere along the line, exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator. See, because if you're fully following Jesus, if you're passionately seeking him, if you're in the word, if you're, um, if you're in relationship with him, there's a different vibrancy about you. Now, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by how much time we read the scripture, or how many outreaches we serve on, or how many worship nights we attend. We're saved by grace. But in that grace, I do believe that it's worked out. The grace in us is worked out. It's the, the evidence of the grace resting on us is us wanting to be close to Jesus, wanting to be in relationship with him. And we see here in Romans, Paul giving the example that, hey, people chose to follow created things, you know, images of birds, reptiles, animals, whatever. And, and they chose to follow and submit their lives to those things, whatever those things needed, whatever those things wanted, they did their lifestyle aligned to these false gods, their lifestyle aligned to created things. And when I look at our world today, it's no different. We may not have idols in the sense of their carven idols here in the West, but in the West, we have plenty of idols that we decide to revolve our entire lives around, like our careers, our favorite entertainers, musicians will say, man, we just listen to them because we like the music, but our lifestyle begins to be impacted by what we are taking in through our ears, through our eyes, what shows we watch, what music we listen to. And so all that to say, I think there is fruit of a life fully committed to Jesus. So if you're going to have the fear of losing your salvation, then I think it's already, uh, it, it, it reveals a little bit of where your heart's at. If you're wondering how close you can be in sin and the world and culture and living in that, but also wanting to make sure that your salvation is secure, I think you're asking yourself the wrong question because it's a full life devoted to Christ, 100% in, not even 1% of your life and what who you are and, and, and how you make decisions and what's important to you can be determined by this world. We have to live according to what it says in the scripture. We have to live according to the way of Jesus. And so can you lose it? I think it's really hard to. I think it's really hard to lose your salvation. But I think it is possible to exchange it. 
And to lose it, I think, means you've wandered from God and you're barely acknowledging him in your life. That's a dangerous place to be. And so I'd encourage you if, you, if you're listening to this and you feel like that's you, you're kind of wondering if you're saved, you're wondering if, you know, I love Jonathan Pokluda, one of my favorite pastors to follow. He has a saying that he'll tell people, he said, if you were to die right now on a scale of one to 10, 10 being you're going to be in heaven, absolutely. And one, you're definitely going to hell. Where are you on that scale? And he said, when he asked most people, um, it throws them off because they don't usually start with the number. They start justifying before they even say the number. And so I would encourage you guys, if I asked you that question right now on a scale of one to 10, if you were to go to heaven or hell, 10 being you're definitely going to heaven and one being you're definitely going to hell, which would you say? Would you try to justify your answer or would you just be confident and know that, you know what? I'm in right standing with the Lord. I'm in relationship with him. I know he loves me. I know I'm saved by grace. I'm not living in sin. I'm not living close to the line. I'm not just trying to do my church thing and hop out. Ask yourself, how committed to Jesus are you? Where would you put yourself on that scale? I think it's a good way to process that question. All right. How to be more selfless in a relationship. You best believe we're going to go there about relationships. I think I'm, I need to do a relationships podcast. Maybe my next one I'll do. Um, I think this is a great question because we all know in relationships, we cannot represent Jesus in any relationship, whether it be a friendship or a marriage, if we haven't committed to the mentality and the active lifestyle of learning to be selfless. Um, Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, rather, consider others greater than yourself. And I think that's the standard for us as Christians, is that we consider others better than ourselves, greater than ourselves. We go low, we serve them. It's to be selfless. But let's look at Ephesians 4, verses 29. Verse 29 through 32. Now, before I read it, I think this is the barometer to kind of check yourself. These are practical ways to look at your heart, have a heart check moment um, where if you want to be a selfless friend, a selfless boyfriend or girlfriend, a fiance, Husband, wife, father, mother, these are great things to check your heart um, and say, hey, are these things indicative of me? Um, Do I need to change anything? So here's what Paul says in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who are listening. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you have sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And so I think in there, obviously we look at some of this stuff and be like, oh, malice and brawling and anger. And you're like, well, I'm not really like that. Cool. Then let's jump to the next verse. It says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Are you kind and compassionate to your friends? Are you kind and compassionate to your spouse? 
Are you the type of person where if your spouse spoke about you to other people, they would say, he's kind, he's compassionate? Would you, would you have a reputation where it says we forgive each other just as Christ God forgave you? Do you keep records of wrongs? Are you someone that says like, well, I did this. I, I did the dishes last night, so you should do them today. That's not selflessness. That's keeping score. And so I would say, how do I be more selfless in a relationship? Um, read Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. Philippians 2, verse 3. And then look at the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. Hey, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, forbearance. Do you have those things in your relationship? Is that something that would you would say is a fruitful thing in your relationship? You say, oh, I love them so much. I love them so much. But you're so impatient with them. You roll their eyes at them. You give sarcastic comments to them all the time. I would challenge you that selflessness is probably the most important thing you can develop in a relationship, especially in a dating, engaged, married relationship, because selflessness is really at the core of staying healthy because selfishness is at the core of so many broken relationships, divorce and adultery, greed, um, or just, uh, uh, an apathetic marriage, a dry marriage, a, a marriage that is boring and stale. You don't want to have that kind of marriage. You don't want to have that kind of relationship. So it takes selflessness. It takes um, going low and serving others. And I know for me, I'm always challenged by that with my wife, Allie. I'm like, hey, I want to serve her well. I want to love her well. And to do that, I need to be selfless. And moments where selfishness comes in or pride comes in, it's easy for the Holy Spirit to convict me and say, that's not selflessness. That's not who I've created you to be. So that's my advice on selflessness. How to get out of a cycle of having a faith determined by feelings. Ooh. This is very timely. I don't remember who said this, but someone once said, feelings are great companions, but they're terrible leaders. Feelings are great companions, but terrible leaders. And unfortunately, especially in the Christian world today, it's easy to be led by our feelings. I felt this in worship. I felt this in prayer. I felt this when I was reading the word. And I, I think the Holy Spirit speaks through our emotions, speaks through inclinations or stirrings in the heart or things that we can't perceive. We don't really know where, but we just, we feel it. And I get it. I am a full believer of that because I feel that very often. I really do. But to live according to our feelings, man, feelings are deceptive. Jeremiah 17, nine says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Proverbs 12 verse 15 the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. When you listen to these scriptures, if we're led by our own feelings, if we're led by our own heart, if we're led by our own um, emotional responses, there are probably some situations it's going to be okay. But in life, being led by your feelings, it's a terrible way to live. And this is a dramatic example, so forgive me, but... Um, you may not always feel like going to work, but you know that you need to. You may not always feel like getting into the word, but you know you need to. 
you say, man, I really just haven't felt the presence of God in such a long time. So you go from worship night to worship night to service to service, conference to conference, and you're looking for that feeling instead of looking for truth and looking for living water. See, here's the thing about living water. Water is just necessary. You know, you can't go, I think it's three days without water, without dying. But water isn't glamorous. Water isn't crazy. Water isn't like, oh, sugar, caffeine, coffee. Water is just necessary. And for us to know that we are not led by our feelings, but we're led by that living water. We're led through relationship with Jesus. I think it's often like a relationship, a romantic relationship we may have here on earth. Imagine if I was feelings led in my marriage with Allie. Sometimes it might be really great. Feelings are great in relationship. But I think a lot of times, a lot of times, if I was led by my feelings in our relationship, um, it wouldn't be healthy. It wouldn't be selfless. It wouldn't be the type of relationship that is consistent. It would be very up and down, up and down. You guys probably know couples that feel like they're always up and down, always up and down. They're fighting one minute and then they're love each other the moon and back the next day. Like a lot of this. And I don't think that's the way that God intended relationships to be with on earth, but even more so a uh, relationship with him. He wants consistency. Uh, one of my favorite books ever, which I'll talk about here in a little bit, uh, Rooted by Banning Leapshire. Banning has this awesome quote about feelings. Listen to this. Banning says, your feelings can be inconsistent, but God's word never is. Change the way you talk. Challenge other people to change the way they talk. It doesn't feel real sometimes, but we all walk by faith, not by sight. Do you know, I wrote that down wrong. Do you know what's more real than anything that you've ever felt? It's what he says. Let me say that again. Do you know what's more real than anything you're, you're feeling? It's what he said. And we can't be feelings led because we have to be word led. We have to be faith led. And faith doesn't always mean I felt this, so I'm stepping out. Faith is I know this is what God's word says, and so I'm just going to act on it. And sometimes those decisions that you make based off of scriptural truth um, those are the ones that are hardest to make. And honestly, your feelings may tell you, don't do that. You're going to feel this way. This person's going to feel that way. Um, this person's going to respond to you in social media in that way. And your feelings can betray you in that moment when you're looking at scripture, when you're looking at biblical truth and you're saying, but this is right. This is what I know the Lord says. And so just know that uh, you can't be feelings led. You have to be faith led. And there's a difference. Faith is not all goosebumps and hair standing up on your, on your arm and, and feeling that, that move in worship. Those things are great. I've had it. I, I hope to have more of those encounters and experiences. Absolutely. But my faith can't be driven by feelings. It has to be by the word of God, by what he said. Don't be feelings led. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. How to deal with the ego of a Christian. Yes, yes, let's go there. We need more ego-less Christians in the 21st century. Come on, somebody. To be honest, I'll, I'll, before I even get into scripture, I'll just say, even me starting this podcast was an internal wrestle because I'm like, I'm on camera. 
I have a podcast mic. I'm recording. I'm sending this out. I'm giving commentary on questions. And there's the two extremes of Christian ego. There's the false humility. It's like, I have nothing to say. Like there's other people that can say it better. Why would they listen to me when they could listen to Louis Giglio or Sadie Robertson or Robert Madu? Like, why would they listen to me? So there's that side of kind of this humility slash false humility slash insecurity. On the other side is, oh, I'm a, I'm a creator. I'm a content creator and everyone should listen to what I say. And I'm going to post every clip of myself and I'm going to, every sermon that I preach, there's going to be four short form clips that I'm going to throw everywhere and I want to blow up and. Well, again, a lot of those things you wouldn't say, but you're thinking about it. Um, and to be honest, I feel like doing this podcast, um, having a YouTube channel as, as humble and as small as they are, it's actually helped ground me into staying in the middle of those two roads of being confident and being like, God has given me things to say. He has given me wisdom. When I read God's word, I feel that he speaks to me. I, I hear him say things to me. And so I, I want to respond. I want to share those things. But at the same time, I don't act like I'm the resident expert. I hope everyone that listens to this podcast actually looks up the scriptures that I say, actually facts checks what I'm saying. If you don't believe there's animals in heaven, I hope you do your own research on it. You know, <laughs> So just know uh, dealing with the ego in the 21st century as a Christian eh, is, uh, is very important. Uh, and so this is a great question. Philippians 2 verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. We just read that, but I'm reading it again because I think you should hear that first part. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's really important that we don't do anything. Start a podcast, a YouTube channel, on our social media, our jobs, our friend groups, leadership opportunities, serving opportunities. We do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Romans 12, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Come on. Can we, all of us that share things on social media, can we just remember to never be wise in our own sight? I understand that my knowledge, even as I'm answering these questions and reading scripture, is limited. And yes, there is a grandfather here on this earth that has walked with Jesus for 80 90 years, loves the Lord, and he has some deep wisdom. And so I dare not think that I have all the answers. I dare not think that I, everyone should come to me and hear my podcasts and my YouTube channel. Like, that's so dumb. And I, I don't want to ever pose on this podcast like I know it all or that I should be the source. I should be a voice in your life. If you want to listen to this, like, great, make me a voice in your life. That's, that's what I think us as Christians, we can be, we should be, um, vocal about our faith. We should be vocal about what God's teaching us in scripture. I think social media is beautiful. I love social media because I love the reach that it has. I love how we can encourage one another and not even have to be in the same room. Like, I love that. I love that you're listening to this podcast and you're being challenged in your faith. But if we do it out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, if we do it trying to be wise in our own eyes, then we have already failed and all of our content means nothing. In John 15, I won't turn there, but uh, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Man, I could I have a great brain that is able to filter information and have good critical responses and no apologetics and have a, a theology degree. But apart from him, 
I can do nothing. And so every before every podcast, before answering these questions, I really try to soak it in prayer so I can be natural me and not try to be a presenter on here, but perhaps answer authentically and truly and that the Holy Spirit would speak through me in a podcast, in a YouTube video. And so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll end this question with a quote from Billy Graham. He said, you're never more like the devil than when you want credit for what you do. The praise of man is a snare. Man, don't be like the devil and want credit for everything. If someone quoted you and didn't cite you, would you be that upset? Look, you're not the original person to think of that thought. Someone in history has thought that. Someone in history has said that. To me, you use your voice. You use your creativity to share the gospel, to teach, to equip people, to call them into missions or into evangelism. Like, do it. Use your voice. But just remember that uh, you are no better than any other person. At the end of the day, we're all going to be around the throne. We're all going to be worshiping and serving the creator. And to us, the praise of man is a snare. We have to be mindful of that. We have to be careful. If you guys sent me all this positive feedback about my podcast or YouTube channel, or I got a million subscribers on YouTube, I have to be careful because the praise of man is a snare and I don't want to be caught in that snare. Ah, yes. What is my favorite book? A review of my favorite book. I'm going to grab it. This is like the most casual podcast you've ever seen. <laughs> That's good though. If you're if you're only listening to this on the audio, you're missing out because I'm wheeling around in my chair and having a good time. Uh, Rooted, Banning Leapshire, my favorite book of all time. Uh, I forget the first year I read it. I believe it was while I was in college. Um, it had just come out. Let me see if I had any marking in here. And uh, so Pastor Banning Leapshire is the pastor at Jesus Culture in Sacramento. Ah, yes, 2016. Yes, I was in college. And um, Banning, the whole purpose of the book is um, him talking about the hidden places where God develops you. And there are three soils he talks about in this book that I think are absolutely fundamental for the life of every believer, but especially for you young believers where um, you are really looking to create a firm foundation for the rest of your life. And so there are three soils he mentions, uh, intimacy, serving, and community. Intimacy being intimacy with God, uh, really establishing the soil of intimacy in your life so that you can be rooted in intimacy with him through scripture, worship, prayer, developing a, a rhythm of of doing life with Jesus and not just making him a tag on five minutes a day, but really investing in a relationship with him. Number two is serving. He talks about what are you doing to serve others? You know, sometimes we have our lives and our lifestyle and our families, our friends, but what are you doing to give? What are you doing to go outside of yourself? And especially for those that aren't in vocational ministry, really looking for ways to say, how am I investing in my community? How am I serving? Um, not that people in vocational ministry are excused from that, but often they're just more naturally in those circles and doing things like that. So um, if you find yourself not in vocational ministry, ask yourself, what am I doing to serve others? Whether it be a local outreach in the city, an initiative that your friends are doing, um, 
raising money for projects for people or just serving your neighbors. Maybe you know that there's needs in your neighborhood or the person in the apartment across from you looking to serve them in ways. What are you doing to serve those around you? And number three is community. Uh, man, just surrounding yourself with great people, surrounding yourself uh, with people from your local church, being rooted and established in a local church. Uh, he talks about all three of those soils and all of them are so fundamental. So if you don't have it, Rooted by Banning Leapshire. I'll put a link in the description below so you can check it out. This book will change your life. I love Pastor Banning, and I plan on reading it at least once a year for a while. I have for like the last five or six years. So there you have it. Women in ministry, question mark. What do I think about women in ministry? Women in ministry are critical, valuable, irreplaceable, and very strategic. I sometimes wonder why we still need to have this conversation, to be honest. I understand where people pull from in scripture, Paul talking to Timothy. I get it. I've studied it. Um, I have my undergrad and my master's degree in theology. doesn't mean I know everything, but I've done some study on it. And to be honest, my takeaways is that was very contextual. That was very much according to the culture and the times. And I think in our world today, we need women's voices more than ever. There are more women on this planet than there are men. That's a fact. Uh, there are more women usually in our Christian institutions, whether it be church, a university, uh, missions programs. There are more women than there are men. So... If we want to be real, the question we should be asking is how do we get more men to engage because a lot of them are apathetic or slacking off. So that's the real question we should be asking. The question of women in ministry, mostly I think this is pertaining to women in leadership. I'm saying absolutely. It's essential and I can stand flat-footed and look you in the eye and say like we need more women in leadership. It's amazing to me working at a Christian university and I look at the speakers we have in chapel, I look at major conferences, I look at podcasts, I look at all these different things and there's so little women in those spaces. And actually, I actually, I'll take that back a little bit. I've seen a lot more women jumping into podcasting and doing really well and having a great voice. I know some uh, Christian YouTubers who are women and do a great job of um, talking to other women, especially about um, a lot of things they've gone through and how women really just are great at supporting each other in that. Uh, so the idea of a woman's voice and the idea of a woman in leadership, I think is absolutely essential. And I think we cannot look at a scripture out of context, which I think is what a lot of people do. Uh, we can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation about women in high levels of leadership uh, to me, they're just as valuable there than any other part of leadership. I think having a senior pastor that's a woman is no issue. You can have a problem with me for saying that, but I just look at scripture and I don't see anything that says that we can't have her and uh, have a woman in leadership. And to me, we need more women speaking because there's more women that need to be equipped and trained. And honestly, there's way more men in leadership roles, pastoral roles, speaking roles. And if we look at the... Um, off balance of that. And then we relate it to how men aren't in the church as much as women go look up studies, go look up Barna things. Go, look, I mean, just there's more women. And so we need to equip the women that are coming. And so who better to do that than 
the voice of another woman who loves God. So I think it's kind of ridiculous that we have to keep talking about it. I understand the heart of the question because a lot of church backgrounds where people come from, it is still a question and they have a very different opinion. It's okay. We have different opinions. But in my book, um, in order to represent God fully, man is created in the image of God. Woman is created in the image of God. So to say only one can have an opportunity to lead and to speak and to invest and be the face of the church means that there's this other part, this other image of God that we are forsaking and we are suppressing. And oftentimes we've been suppressing that because of the power needs of men. I'm about to go in on that. I don't, I I need to step back. Know that the image of man, the image of woman, both reflect the glory of God. And I think it's so important that both are highlighted equally in churches, in conferences, in speaking opportunities, on podcasts, YouTube channels. I don't care what it is, but we need women to be on that same level because um, they're just as much an image, an imago day of representing God on cameras, on microphones, on podcasts, in books, in conferences, as a man is. So if you're a woman listening to this, know that the Lord wants to use your voice. He wants to use your story. So train, equip yourself, be ready to speak in and out of season. And it doesn't mean all of you have to be preachers, but all of you can represent Jesus in your own way. For example, Allie, she really doesn't love to speak very much. She's so good at it. I love when she speaks, but she'd much rather write. She'd much rather have a one-on-one conversation, but she knows that in those situations, she has authority. She knows in those situations um, who she is in Christ, and she can speak from her story, her experience, her relationship with God. So women of God, rise up. Don't wait for someone to hand you something. Use your voice. Represent Jesus. Imago day, you are representing the image and glory of God. Okay, two more, two more. Oh, man. Women in ministry followed by a spiritual gift tier list. Mm. So I do work at Earl Roberts University. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and received the gift of tongues in 2012, I believe. I was just leaving high school, going into college, had an incredible moment in the prayer room with my youth pastor, Brandon Cormier at the time. Shout out to Pastor Brandon. He taught me before prayed for me. I think this is just a good little introduction. He taught me about the gift of tongues. He taught me about the gifts of the Spirit. He taught me. He read me through three or four chapters in first Corinthians to really give me context. Cause I didn't understand. I didn't know why tongues was a big deal or, um, what the gift really meant or how does it work? Like I was just really curious. And so he took the time probably over an hour, just going through the scripture with me. And then he said, Augustine, do you want to, do you want to ask God for this gift? And I was like, yeah, I think I do. It sounds great to me. <laughs> So we prayed and I spoke in tongues for the first time that day. And I have always appreciated how my youth pastor took the time to help me understand and speak scripture to me before just laying hands on me and asking for the gift, a gift that I didn't even know what it was or if I really wanted it. So let that be a note to you, young pastors and leaders. Uh, It's okay to educate and bring the scripture. Actually, I'd say it's more than just okay. I'd say it's essential 
to give scripture and give context even before someone should want a gift. Because on the outside, it could look a little weird. On the outside, it can be like, why should I want that? What benefit is that? Especially if they didn't grow up at the church. So um, yeah, lead with scripture. I think that's a very good approach. But let me answer the question a little more directly. So spiritual gift tier list. If you really want to study this, which I say you should, you should look at 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, and 1 Corinthians 14. So I'm going to summarize each of the three right now so you understand my answer, um, but I'm going to give you those as context really quick. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's main theme in that, in that chapter is that as believers, we should eagerly desire spiritual gifts and that he, as in God, designates the gifts to us. We ask, but he designates. And so it's this initial setup when Paul's talking about the gifts of the spirit, where he says, you should want them. My youth pastor telling me, you know, speaking in tongues is awesome. Let me tell you about it. This is why you should want it. And after hearing him, I was like, yeah, I do want it. And so it's that setup of like, you should eagerly desire to live with spiritual gifts. It's awesome. Desire, the key word there. We'll come back to that. But he, God, designates the spiritual gifts that he gives to his children. I know people that have gone through ORU, prayed for the gift of tongues for four years, and never spoke in tongues. Do I think there's something wrong with them? Do I think that they're missing something? Do I think that they need to study scripture more? No, because I know that scripture says that God designates those gifts in their time and who really needs them, who uses them in that season. To me, I'm not on the outside trying to judge why or why not people get certain gifts. That's not, that's for the Holy Spirit to do. I'm not the judge. I'm stepping off the judgment seat. I don't want it. Jesus can have it. But I do see that Paul says that God designates those gifts. So that's important to remember. So desire and designate. First Corinthians 13, we all think it's about marriage, but really Paul is using it right in the middle of talking about the gifts of the spirit. He kind of takes a break from, okay, desire it. God designates who gets it. Pause. If you don't have love, spiritual gifts don't matter. And that's a strong statement. It's like, no, spiritual gifts, it's powerful. And God does things and authority and anointing. But Paul says, as you guys remember in first Corinthians 13, that if you have all the spiritual gifts, but you have not love. You're just a clanging symbol. And if you're just a clanging symbol all the time, nobody's going to want to hear you. Nobody cares what you have to say because you're that kind of leader that does amazing spiritual things, laying hands on and people getting slain and there's prophecies and there's words. And then backstage, you treat people like crap. You treat them like dirt. And I've seen it, unfortunately, in people where they are so about their spiritual gift, but they could care less about the mess that they leave behind. They could care less about how people are responding to Jesus and more about how they are responding to the anointing on their life. I'm trying to be wise. So first Corinthians 13, Paul is saying, look, if you don't have love, you can have all the spiritual gifts. It doesn't matter. And that's where he really talks about love and goes through all of those things that we hear at weddings for a couple, for a spouse to a spouse, but really it's for a believer to a believer. It's a believer to a non-believer. Hey, you can talk about how you have the gift of prophecy and you can speak in tongues and do all these things. You can interpret tongues, but if you don't love people, then you're already missing the mark of what Jesus has called us to love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the other spiritual gifts, all that comes after. 
I would argue if you're loving people well, you actually can operate in the spiritual gifts well, better because you're loving well. And I'll get to that in a second. So eagerly desire the gifts. He's going to designate those gifts. Remember, love is the most important thing. If you don't have it, your spiritual gifts don't matter. Okay, now jumping back into the gifts, I would rather you prophesy. Mm, I'm going to have to go there. Some people are not going to believe me. You should look this up too because it's so good. 1 Corinthians 14, that's what I was talking about. Um, A lot of people think that tongues, speaking in tongues, is the most important or prominent gift um, for uh, the believer. I think that Paul says that it's actually not true, that it's not the most important one. Um, Here's what Paul says in, in chapter 14, starting verse one, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the spirit, especially prophecy. So he's kind of bringing it full circle from chapter 12 into chapter 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the spirit, especially prophecy for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. So tongues is great. Paul wants every single believer in the church at Rome to speak in tongues. He wants that. It's a good thing. But Paul says, I would rather have you prophesy. I want all of you to have the gift of tongues is what Paul says. But I would rather you prophesy. Why, Paul? Why would you rather us prophesy? The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. So tongues, the gift of tongues, is, hey, it's us communing with God. It's um, edifying for us. I know when I've spoken in tongues, especially in worship or prayer times, I feel just a, a, a divine connection. I really do. And it's it's hard. It's weird. It's mysterious to like put into words. But like when I speak in tongues, like I really do feel connected to the Holy Spirit. Paul says that's valuable. But if he was looking at me, he'd say, Augustine, I'd rather you prophesy. Why? Because when you prophesy to someone in a biblical way, it's encouraging, it's affirming, and it's comforting. And I think sometimes we make prophecy like future, future telling, fortune telling, like this is what God's going to do in your life. And I think that is a part of prophecy. It's giving a prophetic word for someone if you feel that for somebody's life. But Paul says here that when you prophesy that you are strengthening, encouraging, and comforting, not just the believer, but the unbeliever. Um, later on in the chapter, he talks about how when you speak in tongues, like, the outside world, those that aren't Christians look at you and like, this is foolishness. This is weird. Are they drunk? Like it talks about an ax. But when you prophesy, there's something in a person where when you read their mail, when you speak into a situation that you have no idea about, but you just feel like the Lord gives you a scripture, a word, an encouragement, an affirmation, something to challenge someone and you speak it and they start crying right in front of you. That's when God's like, boom, right there. And so Speaking in tongues is valuable, but all the more so uh, prophecy is that much more important. 
I, I think that we put a lot of emphasis on tongues and some emphasis on prophecy, but I think if we were to read scripture like here, I'd rather you speak in tongues. Oh no, sorry. I just misread that. I'd rather you prophesy. Um, keep that in mind as you're prayerfully chewing through this, depending on your denomination, some denominations, you know, believe that if you're filled with the Holy spirit, the evidence of being filled with the spirit is speaking in tongues. I don't necessarily believe that. I know people that I would say are full of the Holy spirit and give prophetic words, operate in the fruits of the spirit and their life looks a lot like Jesus. And I don't think they speak in tongues. I've had conversations with people where I know they don't speak in tongues. So I would just be mindful, wrestle through that, pray through that, look through scripture, read first Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 for yourselves and really see what Paul says about it. Is there a tier list of, you know, one through five? Like, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's Paul's rationale. I think Paul's rationale is that prophecy is good for the believer and the unbeliever. Whereas tongues is more about edifying yourself. Um, and being in communion with God. So just keep that in mind as you're uh, prayerfully wrestling through spiritual gifts, especially as a young believer. All right, last one. This is a fun one, and it has to do with coffee. Why Christians should drink good coffee. It's a weirdly worded question a little bit, but I actually thought this was really fun, fun enough that I had to answer it. And you're like, that seems kind of like a weird question following spiritual gifts and women in ministry and all that. I know. Let's end on a fun note. Okay. Um, we talk about coffee a lot as Christians. I read an article, uh, I think it was in the Washington post where, uh, they were critiquing Christians because it was like, Christians are like, we don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't do X, Y, Z under that, but we will consume an incredible amount of caffeine and not bat an eye and say, it's for the Lord. Discipleship at coffee shops, Bible studies, you know. I thought that was hilarious because I was like, yeah, we've, some of us overdo it on caffeine. I know I have in the past. Um, did you know that coffee up until the year 1600 was seen as Satan's drink? Satan's drink. And that phrase really was rooted in a lot of racism and also just total ignorance in the sense that like th th nothing in the scripture ever talks about that. Um, but there are little, you can look it up. There are literal paintings and carvings of like the devil, Satan drinking cups of coffee. And again, it's bad. It's racist because uh, before the year 1600, coffee was predominantly made in the Middle East. And uh, there were groups of people that didn't follow Jesus, followed other religions, um, even some as you get around the Crusades era, where the people from the Middle East, when they were fighting the Crusaders, they would drink coffee and would give them all this energy and the caffeine booths, obviously. And so there were, there were Christians that were calling it the devil's drink because it fueled the devil's army. Guys, it was, it's terrible. It's like, you should go back through and read all these different things. I put an article um, in the description below called uh, Coffee or Die. Coffee or Die. And it gives like a really good breakdown of the history of coffee with Christianity. 
But around the year 1600, there was a pope that felt that what they were doing was wrong and also wanted to kind of bridge the gap between people that didn't love Jesus and people that did. Um, and so he drank coffee and kind of broke this weird wall that had been put up from Christians based off of racism, based off of nothing biblical. And uh, <laughs> he drank coffee and it, it caused this whole scene and everyone's like, oh my gosh, like the Pope drank coffee. Um, and uh, somewhere in the article, they talked about how, uh, you know, Christians today, they don't believe in the Trinity anymore. They believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Roast. <laughs> the Holy Roast. That should have been the coffee shop name it over you, man. The Holy Roast. That would have been... <laughs> oh, man. I love it so much. Anyway, I just thought it was really fascinating because I think most Christians' obsession with coffee is ingrained in like our, our lobby has coffee and we do Bible studies at coffee shops and we can't have a men's breakfast without some black coffee. You know what I'm saying? But before 1600, they're like, if you drink coffee, it's of the devil. It's the devil's juice. It's the devil's beans. And how racist and awful was it? But you should you should go read it. I was fascinated. That that just intrigued me so much. Go look up articles. Look through some history stuff. Uh, it's hilarious, sad, but hilarious. Uh, just how Christians can get caught up in so many little things that we're like, why, why do we get caught up in these little things and make them the awful thing of our culture, the awful thing of our day? That if you do this. You're like the enemy. If you get the vaccine, you're getting the mark of the beast. If you get a tattoo, you've already broken what it says in scripture. So now you're going to go to hell. Like some Christians jump to these extremes, man. And I'm like, we should learn. We should study history because back in the day, this was Satan's drink. And now it's the father's son and holy roast. <laughs> mm, that's a good one to end on. Guys, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Digital Discipleship Podcast. If you're listening, thank you so much for taking the time to listen through the episodes. Um, if you're on YouTube, uh, I hope you get a kick out of my face and some of the reactions I have or me sliding around in this chair. Guys, this podcast is so chill, but I'm excited to see what God does with it. Um, I've already heard testimonies of what God's been doing in the lives of people that have been listening, and I'm excited for even more. So, I think I've decided while I've been talking on this podcast that the next episode of this podcast in about two weeks uh, will be all about relationships. So relationships Q&A. So if you don't already follow me on Instagram, follow me on Instagram, and then I'm going to put a Q&A box up at some point, and you can drop your questions in there, and I'll answer them on the podcast. So thank you guys for listening, for subscribing, for liking, and for just supporting me in this podcast and YouTube page. I appreciate y'all. Have a blessed day.